Welcome. This is Jennifer Rock. I'm your host for Ocean Currents. And on this show, we dive into the depths of the big blue sea and our blue planet, talking about different explorations, expeditions, science, research, and ways that we can get involved in, in uh, better protecting our oceans. And we host this show one Thursday a month, every fourth Thursday, 5.30 to 6.30, and it's rebroadcast the following Monday at 1 o'clock p.m. So have you ever been walking on the beach and discovered a marine mammal dead on the beach but curiously missing its head? Have you wondered why the head every single time? Well, today's show will help solve that mystery for you. Later in the last quarter of the show, I'll be talking with uh, bird biologist Michelle Hester of Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge. And this is a group that has just recently started a black-footed albatross tagging project. And we're going to hear all about what's happening with these birds that were just tagged at the Cordell Bank Sanctuary um, a few weeks ago. So stay tuned for the last quarter of the show for that. But tonight, I'd like to welcome the coordinator for the Multimedia Studies Program at, a film at City College and a filmmaker, Beth Cataldo, and also Ray Bones Bandar, a skull collector. Beth um, recently produced a film called A Life with Skulls that deb debuted at the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival this year. And Ray, well, Ray has been walking the beaches for years and collecting skulls for 50 years and has many, many stories to share. So, Beth, let's start with you. How did you first meet Ray? You're a filmmaker and Ray's on the beach with skulls. How did you meet? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I started volunteering at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito early in 2000. And in 2003, we got a message that there was a backstage tour at the Skull Exhibit over at the Academy of Sciences. And I didn't know. I'd been to the Skull Exhibit, and I thought, what would a back backstage tour be? So I signed up. You know, it was free or $20 or something. Um, and went back there, and we met Ray. And so this man took us, and it was about a five-hour, six-hour tour, and he went and told us all about these skulls. And um, if you've ever seen Ray talk about his skulls, he's very enthusiastic. He has these great stories. They're travel stories. They're tragic stories about how he's walking through water and almost drowns. And as a filmmaker, I thought, I've got to film this man. It was the last um, exhibit before the Academy closed down for renovations, and it just inspired me to make this movie about this man. Wonderful. So have, had you been walking on the beaches, too, and and visit, seen animals and wondered what was this all about? It was. That was when I started at the um, Marine Mammal Center. It inspired me to go to the beaches and look for, you know, sick marine mammals. And on Ocean Beach, I had seen a lot of animals without their heads, sand stuck into their where their skulls were, and I couldn't figure out if there was something wrong with their skulls or maybe they decomposed more quickly than the rest of their bodies. Um, and when I went to this backstage tour, it became clear that eureka moment ah this is the man who's been taking their head so that was another thing that i learned on that tour yeah excellent have you do you produce other films too or was this a major undertaking for yourself you know i've made a lot of short movies i've done a lot of like psas i've done some work for the marine mammal center um but i've never done a full length half hour movie and finished it i've started a lot but this one i forced myself to finish so yeah this was a big undertaking. Wonderful. So, Ray, when did you first begin collecting skulls? What's the story behind that? 
Well, in 1953 at Ocean Beach, I used to hang out at Kelly's Cove there and do body surfing. I wasn't very good, but I just still did my body surfing there. No fins, no suits, you know. And uh, this decomposed uh, harbor seal was uh, washed up on the beach there. And I don't know what got into me, but I went home, came back with a knife, and cut off its head. <laughs> and uh, my parents were at work that day, and I didn't know how to prepare them. So I just uh, got a big pot in the kitchen there and uh, turned up, uh, filled it full of water and put the skull in there and, and boiled it to get the flesh off. And did it stink up the house? But fortunately, the house was just off Slope Boulevard. And so I opened up the front door, opened up the uh, rear door so the oceanic breeze would kind of blow through the house. But when my folks came home uh, about 6.30 or 7 o'clock that evening, the house still stunk. <laughs> and I, I never, uh, I did get the flesh off. And uh, that skull is an important one. It's an adult harbor seal. And why it's important is the teeth were worn flat to the gum line. What does that mean? Well, uh, I guess it was doing maybe a lot of bottom feeding and ingesting uh, maybe some sand and gravel or maybe feeding on shellfish. And so in the skull exhibit, I had it there uh, compared with the normal uh, dentition of the harbor seals, which whose teeth are serrated. So it made a nice comparison. Ah, so kind of an educational tool as well. Absolutely. Now, you were a teacher for a while, too. 32 years. 32 years. And my uh, classroom was a museum. The uh, administration used to run tours through my classroom. I had uh, full of live stuff and all kinds of uh, skulls and pelvises and vertebrae hanging from the walls and on the shelves and stuff. And I taught human anatomy and physiology. And if I got a fresh animal on the beach, whether a dolphin, a porpoise, a sea or a sea lion, I would cut the head off cleanly uh, below the throat area and I would uh, dissect it in the classroom so the students could see the larynx and the trachea and all the stuff. And in the meantime, I'd also have a cleaned up skull of the same species to compare it. And uh, so my classroom was uh, pretty uh, pretty neat. Your students must have eaten that up. Yeah. And uh, I had uh, two freezers in the back. I finally got the city to pay for it. Four-foot freezers full of uh, uh, monkeys and apes I'd get from these local zoos. And so my students, my seniors in the anatomy physiology class, were able to dissect uh, monkeys and apes. Uh, the greatest one was a full-sized chimpanzee the size of a human. And uh, even wow. in medical school, they don't—they didn't get what they got in my classroom because these bodies that were being dissected had the natural colors and natural aromas. They weren't embalmed. That's amazing. That is so precious. Uh, hard to hear of other educators that have that same resources as you brought. What happened to all your skulls from your classroom? I, I take it these are still in your collection. Well, um, uh, that, that summer that uh, I retired. Uh, my wife took off on her one of her long trips. She and uh, so I brought all the stuff home. It took a while. I had live I had scorpions and tarantulas and snakes too to add to the stuff I had at home. But the bones and so I brought them all home. And I had this one big set of moose antlers from a bull moose, and I had no room to hang it up in the walls. So I stuck it in the bathtub. <laughs> and when my wife finally came home from her trip. 
in order to take a bath, I had to lift up out of the bathtub each time. But after a few years of doing this, I said, nuts. I'm not going <laughs> to take it out of the bathtub anymore, and you can just use the shower. And so it sits in the bathtub, but there's also a moose, uh, caribou rack right above it for a towel rack, which was okay. But if I stood up in the bathtub, it was too low. I, I hit my head on it. So we can't take baths in the house anymore, just showers. I can imagine. So there is a second equation here. Alchemy is your wife. Yeah. And she was an artist. She is an artist. Yeah. So part of this was an artistic search as well, right? You were yeah. enjoying exploring the different shapes of skulls together and, and you took the you guys traveled all over together what were some of your earlier travels well, and skull collecting stories it, it wasn't just skulls but the pelvises and vertebrae too are very sculptural in fact i really get hooked on some of the pelvises because they're so neat the shapes well the uh, the honeymoon trip uh which was 11 weeks of camping, we covered 11,000 miles in her little Ford, yellow Ford convertible with a black top. It was a 1946 Ford. And the honeymoon was in 1954. And so we took off camping across the United States and Canada. Camped in Montreal and Quebec. And in art school where we met, uh, I was and hooked on bones. And we, we drew uh, skeletons and bones to study human anatomy. But Henry Moore and George O'Keefe were really inspirational. But I think one of the key uh, things was when I got to the Natural History Museum in New York, they had these great dioramas, but they also had displays of full skeletal mounts. And when I saw the full skeletons of uh, uh, a bison, of a giraffe, a 20-foot python, I said, wow, those skeletons really blew my mind. And coming back from the honeymoon trip, uh, we were driving across Colorado, and my wife says, hey, I see some, looks like a skeleton out in the field. So I pulled over, hopped the fence, full skeleton of a horse. Wow. As we went down into Utah, I found skeletons of a winter kill sheep and then more stuff in Arizona. And by the time I got back to San Francisco, the back of the Ford uh, was piled high with bones with the camping stuff on top of it. We had taken out the back seat to have room for the camping stuff, but now it's packed full of bones. Wow. So you got hooked up with the Cal Academy after you retired from teaching, and what did you do through the Cal Academy? No, I was, I actually got hired at the Cal Academy before I started teaching oh, okay. in 1956. And then when I got my teaching credential, I resigned from a paid position, and uh, the director didn't want me to leave, so it made me, told me to stay on as a field associate. And uh, in 59, they sent me on an expedition to Mexico and then uh, more expeditions to Baja, California, 64 and 65, and, well, 65 down to the cloud forest of Oaxaca and 64. So they sent me on a number of expeditions uh, and I collected for the Department of uh, Entomology. I collected insects. Wow. I collected reptiles, but mainly I was mammalogy, collecting uh, mammals. So, just to bring folks in, um, talking with Ray Bones Bandar, a skull collector, and Beth Cataldo, who's recently documented Ray's skull collecting fetish in life, and we're going to talk about the film a little bit in, in, towards the end, but um, about the Cal Academy, what did they use this, some of the skulls for, and some of the information you were, what are they using the information for? 
Well, it goes into the research collection, and the skulls that I collect has all the data as to the species, the sex, the age, and some measurements, and the government especially interested in causes of death. And so especially if I can document human-related causes of death, and there are many, I can give many stories about uh, human-related causes of death of marine mammals. And let's, let's, let's hear a couple of those stories. Well, uh, sometimes when I remove the flesh from the skull, I'll find bullet holes. And once the skulls are cleaned up, like in the skull exhibit, I had a whole series of skulls that showed bullet holes, entry and exit, and also those were shot with shotgun. So the, sk the skull peppered with tiny punctures, and often the pellets from the shotgun are still embedded in the bone. So that's one cause, but also boat and ship collision, collisions. And so from San Francisco Bay, uh, a harbor seal that had uh, propeller slashes across the hind end and the rear flippers. Another harbor seal that I got, I picked up at uh, Fort Point by the Golden Gate Bridge, and I brought the whole carcass back to the academy because it was real fresh. And as I fleshed it out and opened it up, I found the ribs on one side were crushed, and the abdominal and uh, uh, thoracic cavities were full of blood. So it had a, a boat collision on one side. And I worked on a humpback whale, uh, a big 40-foot humpback whale down by Pescadero. And while the vets were uh, working on it, I was uh, cutting out several other bones. And then when they finished, I started fleshing out the skull, and one side of the skull was smashed. And uh, she also had a full-term fetus in her. Hmm. But uh, So she had a boat collision that hit the skull and crushed half the skull on one side. I suppose at the time that you were getting the animal and examining it, I mean, what information could be, I mean, there's probably very legal authority that could deal with prosecuting anybody at that point once you have the animal and the pellet. Have there ever been any cases where there might have been some uh, prosecution as a result of your investigation? No. Uh, the uh, fish and game wardens, they want me to, if I collect any bullets that are still embedded in the skull, to save them, see if they can match up. Because uh, several years ago, uh, I recovered several sea lions that were shot by the Hyde Street Pier and Pier 39. And uh, so I was able to salvage the bullets, and I gave it to the fish and game uh, guy there to uh, keep. They had a suspect, but none that I recall. What was interesting, in the late 70s and early 80s, as I was walking the beaches uh, north of uh, Pacifica, Thornton Beach, Fort Funston Beach, Ocean Beach, I was seeing these piles of diving seabirds washed up on the beach. And also porpoises, harbor porpoises were being washed up. And the harbor porpoises had their fins and their tails cut off and the fins cut off. And there were net marks on some of them. And this continued over the next several years. And eventually, five years later, they had a meeting at the Marin County Civic Center there with Fish and Game and National Marine Fisheries. And so I testified along with others regarding finding all these uh, marine mammals. I got seals and sea lions also that had drowned in nets. And uh, so they finally passed uh, some ordinances where they couldn't use 4-inch gill nets. They had to change the 8-inch gill nets, and they couldn't gill net uh, close to shore. They had to be off the Farallones, and between the Farallones and Ani Nuevo, there were restrictions. But that took about five years.
Wow, a lot of animals perished through that time. Lots of them. So are those skulls in your collection? The skulls are at the California Academy of Sciences and also in my collection. Because uh, once the academy uh, is rebuilt and we have more space, because they were running out of space as I was collecting all these marine mammals. So I was collecting actually several thousand. And the rare ones I get and the big ones are housed at the academy. All the sea otters go there, the rare beaked whales, and uh, the large, some of the skulls are uh, two to five feet long. And so they end up at the academy uh, and they find room to house it. But they have a space problem. Yeah, and the space problem has moved to your house. And I, Beth, you got a nice tour of Ray's house during the filming, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> Skull Palace, yes. What was the Skull Palace like? Well, it's a room um, that is, I guess you could use the word, crammed with thousands of skulls. I think Gray has told me he has over 7,000 skulls, and I think a good number of those skulls are in this room that is downstairs in his house that he's carved out. He's created shelves above your head. I don't want to describe it too much because there's a good scene in the end of the movie that everyone kind of drops their jaws. and most people say I'm, they're glad I saved it for the end of the movie because otherwise they would have think, thought he might be kind of a nut if I had started the movie with it because there's so many skulls. That's neat. So what are some of the di- other skulls you have? The skulls exhibit was amazing. And I just, I was, it was, took forever to go through because it was so hard to go through it quickly. You had to stop and read everything. But give me some of the um, other skulls that are part of your collection. Well, there's uh, elephants and hippos and rhinos. Now, how did you get those back to California, or those from the zoo? <laughs> those are zoo animals. Oh, zoo okay. animals. And what was interesting, they had. Uh, when I got to, when I was teaching full time, I couldn't get there all the time, and so they had a uh, an uh, elephant skull, uh, dead one. They sent it to the tallow works. But when I got down to the tallow works, uh, they said, well, it broke up our machinery trying to crush it and so on. In the meantime, when I was at the tallow works, I saw these 50-gallon drums packed full of dead dogs and cats, jumping with fleas and crawling with maggots. And I said, hey, how about these? Where they come from? So they were euthanized from the humane uh, societies or wherever oh. and picked up by a roadkill. And I says. I talked to the, the foreman there and says, you know, I teach biology. And these would be great if I can get a nice collection of different breeds of dog skulls. And so he let me come in on the weekends and I go through those barrels. I don't I think I off. want to hear any more about this one. Yeah. <laughs> I have a dog. <laughs> but, but I got these heads. And so I eventually built up a collection of 30 breeds of dogs. Wow. And it made for great for teaching uh, evolution, man-made evolution by selective breeding. That's interesting. Wow. That's, I didn't know that one. That's a new story. So, Ray, what, how about collecting here in West Marin beaches? You, I've, I've run into you a couple times, and you told me some incredible stories of getting lost in the dark yeah, yeah. and having to sleep in Poison Oak. And What are some West Marin beach stories? Well, uh, when I remove the heads from pinnipeds, seals and sea lions, I don't just cut off the head. Uh, I have to just cut off the head for dolphins and porpoises. But the seals and sea lions, I skin them back. I make a couple of slits in the mouth, in the jaws, and I skin them back. So when I get the skull removed, the whole head is still there, the skin with the eye holes and the muzzle with the whiskers and so on. And sometimes I just lay it out there and pile some sand in there so when people walking by, they don't know it's minus its head. So it's not a real gross thing. 
but uh, I uh, years ago uh, I uh, before Point Reyes had uh, come on down towards Bolinas, I, I hiked from I used to hike from Agate Beach, and it was a tough hike. Go up to Double Point, which is a big harbor seal haulout. And then from double point, I had to wade through a tide pool. I can do this at a minus one foot tide. And still, I was walking ankle deep in this tide pool to Wildcat Beach. And when I went out there, I found this rare beaked whale, a 15-foot adult female uh, uh, bear's beaked whale, Mesoplodon. And so I stayed there, and I cut off the head. It was pretty difficult. and removed as much flesh as I could. So I wanted to haul it back. And by the time I finished, hours later, the tide had come in. Now, I had a sack with all my gear, and I'd carry it over my shoulder. And I'd go a, few, a hundred yards or so, drop it off, walk back, and get the, the skull and carry it back. I put it in a huge sack. The skull was probably about uh, at least 30 inches long. And when I finally got it back home and weighed it, it weighed over 50 pounds, even though I'd taken off most of the meat. Well, wading through that little tide pool, it was now chest deep. And um, I'd take it off my boots and I had a pair of tennis shoes to wade through tide pools. And then when I got to double point, I I decided I had to bury the skull. It was too heavy to carry, going back and forth. And the tide was in. It was dusk now. And uh, just after going uh, south from double point, the water came up to the cliffs there. And there were some sea caves. So I tried to make a dash between the wave pulling out and the sea caves. And the wave caught me and dragged me into the sea cave, filled it up, and I'm turning up and down, upside down, in the water there. Of course, it, it ruined my binoculars and my boots and stuff. And I finally made it back soaked. My wife was really worried. There was a ranger there with her because it was dark by now. <laughs> and because uh, they were going to send out maybe a search party for me because the tide had come in. And so that was my hairiest story at mm. Point Reyes. And then another time, this was just uh, recently, about uh, three years ago or so, uh, it was in the uh, late spring, or no, early spring, because it got dark early. And I was at Abbott's Lagoon, and about a mile south was a California sea lion that, that was reported. So I removed its head, took off as much flesh as I could, and then walking back, it started raining. And by now it was dusk. By the time I got to Abbott's Lagoon, it was total darkness and raining. And I walked around the lagoon there, found a wooden bridge, and I couldn't find a trail back up to get back to the parking lot. And I kept wandering around back and forth into the bushes, and I didn't want to fall into the lake. So I just curled up. I walked up to the right and uh, away from the vegetation as much as I could, and just curled up in the rain there. And fortunately, my wife was out of town. <laughs> and so I stayed there overnight while it rained down on me for this California sea lion skull. Wow. And at dawn, I finally walked back, found it. See, the trail was overgrown because it was uh, after the wintertime. It was early spring, and the vegetation was everywhere. Wow. That's and how many years ago was that one? Uh, that was just uh, maybe about, uh, what was it, year 2000. Wow. Wow. Um. How about your wife? How does she feel about all this skull collecting? Well, in the beginning, it was pretty cool. She liked uh, the bones. They're very artistic, very sculptural. And uh, uh, several years ago, Wayne Friedman from Channel 7 News came over 
and he did a, a photographic tour of the house, the three levels, and then a photograph in the bathroom, and, and there's the big moose antlers sitting in the bathtub. And so before he left, he asked her, he says, how do you put up with all this? <laughs> and she looked at him straight in the eye there, and she says, without hesitation, I take frequent vacations, and with a pause, long ones. And that's how she put up with it. I have to say, she has a very special role in the film, really featured as well. I think you did a nice job with that, Beth. Yeah, she is, um, she's quite a character. She's very charismatic, and she gives a lot of insight into Ray also. So, yeah, she, she plays a good role in that. So that's the, I should ask how your neighbors feel. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> See, we lived in the Haight-Ashbury for 10 years, and uh, the apartment was a great apartment. It had a view of the Golden Gate Bridge on one side, and from the bathroom window I could see the Bay Bridge, downtown Market Street, and so on. And every room in the house, got I filled it up. The years went by, more and more skulls. I also had lots of animals there. I had eight turtles and tortoises. I had uh, uh, 30 snakes, of which over 20 of them were rattlesnakes. I used to raise rattlesnakes, scorpions and tarantulas, and the bones. And so finally, Alchemini said, you know, I can't sit up my easel anymore to do any drawing or painting. I've had it. We're buying a house. And so we got a real estate guy, and we said we needed a house with a big room down. And he kept showing these places all over the city. We said the western part of the city we wanted to live. And he showed these big rooms. It's too small, not enough room. Well, how much room do you need? I said, will you come up to the apartment and take a look? And he did, and he saw all the stuff there. Okay. And so he found this place. And so uh, under cover of darkness, during Christmas vacation, I had two weeks teaching. So under cover of darkness, I went down the three flights of stairs carrying the skulls and all the terrariums and aquaria with all the animals and stuff. So for two weeks, and my VW van had a big rack, and I filled up the rack up on top with, with the big uh, moose and caribou antlers and, and horns and so on. As I drove up Twin Peaks, cars would drive up past me and they'd slam on their brakes and the heads would peer out the window and look at the silhouette of this van with all these horns and antlers sticking out of the top. So under cover of darkness for two weeks, I snuck all the stuff into the house. The terrariums with the snakes and the turtles and tortoises and all the skulls. Wonderful. And they still don't know? Well, some of the, the <laughs> we got some cool neighbors next door who moved in, so they've had a tour of the place. Oh, cool. And the one guy's an artist, and the other guy collects uh, antique uh, radio and photographs, stuff like this. Oh, cool. And so on. Neat. And, uh, well, we're going to take a short break in just a little bit, and when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about the whole process of once you get to the skull and, you know, the 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 cutting of it off the head, but there's a whole process of removing all that stuff off of the skull. And I want to hear a little bit about that.
This is ocean currents. And what happens with all the flesh on these skulls? How do you get, get that stuff off of there? Well, depending upon w- what beach I'm on, there's not a lot of people there. Not a high-profile beach like uh, China Beach in San Francisco. Uh, I'll stay uh, as long as I can, depending on daylight and stuff like this. Uh, with my scalpel, I'll remove as much flesh as I can. And this makes the ravens and seagulls very happy because they, they come by and pick up the bits of meat. And eventually, I uh, have to leave. I scoop out the brains. The brains is the smelliest part, especially if it's not a a fresh, dead uh, marine mammal. And I try and remove the brains and get all that smelly stuff out there on the beach, which the gulls and ravens don't mind. Uh, I take it back to the lab. Of course, I don't have a lab now. I'm working the stuff at home because the academy has been torn down. They're rebuilding it. So in the lab, I remove more flesh. And depending on the species, if it's the dolphins and porpoises or very young seals and sea lions, pups, uh, yearlings, I remove as much flesh as I can, dry it out, the flesh, semi-dry it, and put it into the dermestid beetle colony. And the beetle larvae feed on the dry flesh. And they do a pretty darn good job of it. Uh, the adults, they just have sex and fly around. And, but it's the larvae that feed on the dried flesh. How long does it tell us? Now, th- How long does that take? It depends. Uh, on the size of the skull, uh, it may take uh, uh, as long as uh, uh, a week or two weeks or a little bit less if it's a smaller skull, like rodent skulls and so on. But the way I do most of my uh, my seals and sea lions and the other land mammals, if they're not real small ones, I remove as much flesh as I can, put it in a container of water, cover it up, just plain tap water, and put it in a warm place by the heater. The temperatures are probably in the 80s. And bacterial action, bacterial maceration removes all the organic material. I can't do this with dolphins and porpoises because the teeth fall out. And then you can't replace them with accuracy. Whereas the seals and sea lions and bears and lions, I can replace the teeth when they fall out into the proper sockets. So that's the way. Since I don't have the bug colony now, I'm preparing stuff at home. I have a deck that sits out in back of the house and the neighbors don't get the smell. And... uh, the maggots. So the flies are coming around and they lay their eggs and the maggots are cleaning up some of my skulls and they're doing a pretty good job of it. Of course, the odor is horrendous, but it doesn't bother me. And Alchemy says she's lost her sense of smell and the neighbors don't get the smell and the flies basically don't come into the house. So that's how I'm cleaning this stuff up. So through death, there's life for others hmm. with all the, the little organisms that are munching on them. Yeah. So, well, you've seen so many different animals and, and probably have investigated different causes of death. What have been some of the unusual causes of death that you've identified through your investigations? Well, I mentioned the boat and ship collisions, but I also want to mention that over the years I've examined nine leatherback sea turtles here in the Bay Area. Uh, three actually in San Francisco. In San Francisco Bay? No, no one, one by the Cliff House, uh, Cliff House Beach, Sutro Baz Beach, and two by uh, uh, Fort Funston Beach. 
by the hang glided areas, and, and one up in the Point Reyes at uh, RCA Beach. And of the nine leatherback sea turtles, four of them had propeller slashes to mm. the carapaces, which obviously killed them. Because right. they frequently see them floating at the surface off the pharaohs, just basking in the sun in the summer and fall months. But some of the unusual causes, I've gotten three harbor seals over the years that choked on fish, large midshipmen fish stuck in his throat. And in fact, one of them was an adult female who had a fetus in her. Oh. And Bob Orr, a, my former boss at the Academy of Sciences, in fact, he wrote a paper about a harbor seal choking on a fish, a scientific paper back in the uh, 50s, I think, or 60s. And, uh, of course, one of the most unusual, which happened in 2003, we had a rogue elephant seal bull at Double Point, at Point Reyes, attacking and trying to copulate with female harbor seals, which is one of the largest seal, uh, harbor seal hall uh, rookeries. And it is observed to have killed at least 45 female harbor seals. He actually killed more because many of them had fetuses and others had nursing pups, which died of starvation. And I recovered uh, about eight skulls that were had uh, puncture holes in them from his teeth that washed up uh, nearby beaches in Point Reyes, north and south of Double Point. And, of course, this last year, we had a rogue elephant seal at uh, Jenner up in the Russian River. And he's been coming here for the last five years trying to cut with female uh, elf, uh, harbor seals and uh, as he mounts them he bites them on the rear end and he mounts them crushes them he bites the skull which is a normal process when he's copulating with uh, uh, female elephant seals and of course he kills them all and so he's been doing this for five years and uh, so those are some of the unusual causes of death interesting have you seen any uh, marine debris caused death? Uh, other than nets, so a number of the animals all wrapped up in, in fish nets, uh, floating ghost nets, I guess they're called. So I've seen uh, dolphins and porpoises and sea lions and harbor seals that were all entangled in nets. And one young uh, a yearling California sea lion, he crawled up on a cliffside uh, at the Bodega Bay and just died there of starvation and others uh, and of course the Marine Mammal Center gets a lot of live ones that are wrapped up in these drift nets and they're able to usually nurse them back cut the nets but uh, that's uh, the marine debris that's uh, killing a lot of marine mammals mm -hmm. unbelievable Beth I, I'm jealous you've had so much time to spend with Ray to hear these stories and probably hearing some new ones still to this day yeah I hadn't heard about the um Harbor seals choking on fish, but he's shown me some very interesting skulls too. There was one, I think, the sea otter that had the shark tooth in it. Ooh, Ooh yeah. tell us about that one. That's yeah, that was. Yeah. Well, uh, most of the sea otters I get have been shark bit. Not all of them. And of course, sharks don't like them because they have all this fur and no meat, no blubber. They like harbor seals. And uh, this one has part of a white shark tooth embedded at the base of the cranium. Wow. And I have uh, in my collection, I have a scapula and some bones with shark teeth uh, serrations, cuts, and also in the skull. And in one of the shoulder blades, uh, the tip of a white shark tooth tooth the serrations is still stuck in the uh, shoulder blade bone there that is so amazing 
Amazing. Yeah. It's just that the stories are so educational. I think they really give us a lot of pictures of what's the, what oceans like, predation, natural predation, natural causes of death, also the human causes of death. And I think Ray's showed us um, definitely uh, in the abundance of the sea lion skulls on the wall at the skulls exhibit just how many things die. Things die. It's just it's, Some of it's natural, some of it's not. And it's it's beautiful what you've done, Ray, with your skulls. And I'd like to just mention, folks, um, to, if you'd like to see this film, A Life with Skulls, Beth and Ray are going to be out here again August 10th. Um, we're hosting the showing of the film on August 10th at the Red Barn Classroom at Point Reyes National Seashore. And that is a Friday. It'll be at 7 p.m., 7 to 8.30. And Ray and Beth will both be here to answer questions. We'll watch the film. And, Beth, you're, this is a, a film available for sale as well. Yeah, and um, the film has been edited down to about a half hour, but there was a lot more footage, so I've created a DVD with a lot of extras on it some footage of Ray's house and some old photos, some great old photos of Ray throughout the years with various animals. Um, yeah, and if anyone's interested, they can either go to my website, which is hummingbirdmultimedia.com, or email me bcataldo at ccsf.edu. So that's City College of San Francisco.edu. Yeah. And that, how do you spell your last name? So that B-C-A-T-A-L-D-O. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Yep. Thank you. How well, just for last last words here, since Ray, you've been on the beaches for years and seen so many things and Beth, you've had some chances through the Marine Mammal Center and through filming this. Do you have any last thoughts for listeners about their role in protecting the ocean after all the things you've seen and, and done? Well, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, I'd take a trip up to Humboldt and Del Norte County looking for dead marine mammals, especially stellar sea lions. And one day when I came out into the beach, these two old uh, fishermen, uh, old guys, were coming back. And I said, hey, any dead uh, seals and sea lions up there? And these are quotes. And they said, no. And they said, shoot them all. I said, gee, how come? What good are they? What do I do for the country? All they do is eat our fish. They should shoot them all. And that was the mentality of those guys. In the meantime, I had some sea otter petitions in my back pocket. So I naively said, hey, how about sea otters? Same thing. What good are they? What do the otters do for the country? All you can do is look at them. Besides, they eat our abalone and eat our clams and our crabs. They should shoot them all. And I felt like saying to these guys, but I didn't. Well, since you old guys are retired, what good are you? What are you doing for the country? <laughs> but I didn't. I just went on my way. So that was the mentality uh, of some of the people who are on the beach. And up in Humboldt and Del Norte County then, they would drive to beach in four-wheel drives, and they purposely ran over a harbor seal carcass. Mm. And I'd find seals and sea lions with the faces sawed off. Oh. They had chainsaws to get souvenir teeth. And the game warden told me, he said, hey, we also find bears with their faces and paws sawed off for souvenir teeth and claws. And uh, it's illegal. They said, check out the souvenir shops up and down the coast and let them know if I see any teeth or claws from bears or seals. Interesting. So it sounds like there's lots of good people can do if they have an attitude shift in, in conserving the things that we're trying to protect. How about you, Beth? Uh, for me, I think um, after spending some time with Ray and just looking at how complex all of um, this web of life is, is that, you know, we should realize we are a part of it. So what we eat, 
what we put in our garbage, what we throw on the beach, and um, we shouldn't throw on the beach, affects all of us. Um, so I would say eat local fish, know, you know, what you're doing, and don't, you know, put chemicals in the water, and be aware that we're a part of this larger web. Thank you. That's great. Well, I hope folks will join us on August 10th to meet Ray and Beth. Uh, the film is wonderful. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's got so much humor and great um, features of, of marine science and Ray and his unique um, uh, attitude in regards to collecting skulls and saving them and investigating them and the, and the adventures he's willing to take. So please come on out August 10th to watch A Life with Skulls, a great Friday evening activity to do. Thanks so much for joining me today in the studio, both of you. It's great. Coming all the way from San Francisco to Point Reyes, it's a, it's a real treat to have you here. It's a beautiful day here. It's nice and foggy in San Francisco. Ooh. So I wanted to mention also, Ray, this is the first time I've had you in a closed room that I'm not choking. Oh, <laughs> oh clean up. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you're... You you must not have cleaned any animals recently. Uh, I have purposely made it a point since I'll be driving the car. Beth, she was driving me, that I wouldn't be working on any rotten stuff last night. <laughs> but a couple of nights ago, yeah. The turkey vultures follow Ray. <laughs> That's right. And when I, when, I, when I get off the beach and I have to go to the supermarket and buy stuff, I've noticed in the past that people would get behind me in line and suddenly people were moving away from me. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, thanks again for joining us. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with Michelle Hester from Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge about the Blackfooted Albatross Tagging Project. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. Wow, what a treat to hear those stories. Um, I think we're going to have to bring Ray in another time to hear some, some more stories. He said as, as as he was leaving, you should have asked me about when I've been in danger. He's had some experiences with animals chasing him, I take it. So on the line here, we're going to switch gears and talk about living things and learning about living things. Um, we have Michelle Hester from Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge which is a nonprofit that is a collaborative of marine scientists. Michelle, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, Jenny. Thanks Thank for you waiting. For having me. Yeah. Hey, so can you just give us a little background on the Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge Group? What is the what is this organization all about? Sure. Uh like you said, we're a nonprofit organization and we're working internationally to gain knowledge about marine and terrestrial ecosystems. And our goal is to share that knowledge in creative ways. And so we're hoping to serve the public by just improving our collective relationship with the natural world. And part of our success is definitely by surrounding ourselves with smart and creative people. So we have lots of uh, partners and collaborators and volunteers in most of our projects. Wonderful. How did you get the word oikonos? That has a, an aquatic meaning to it. What's the background on the word oikonos? <laughs> um, it's actually a made-up word that combines uh, Latin and Greek roots for home and learning. So oikos, um, which literally means home, but it has come to mean our natural environment or, or our ecology. And then gnosis, which means knowledge. So oikonos actually combined means ecosystem knowledge. 
Oh, that's so we, had, we had a little fun with the naming it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. So recently you've been here um, down our way and doing a project with the Cordell Bank Sanctuary, and we're very happy to be a part of this for the last few years, and I just wanted to get some background on it. Um, what's the Albatross Tagging Project all about? Uh, yes, I'm happy to tell you about the Albatross. Um, well, this is the third season where we have been trekking out to Cordell Bank, beautiful bank, and the goal is to track uh, this one species of albatross called the black-footed albatross and try and understand their migration during a period that we call post-breeding. So it's this time of their, their lives when they leave their chicks and leave the breeding colony, and they have the ability to roam great distances around the whole North Pacific, but many come to Cordell Bank, and we know that from lots of the information from both surveys and from people that just spend time out there, that Cordell Bank is this place in the summer where hundreds and hundreds of black-footed albatrosses can come and, and aggregate. So the point of the research is to use this hotspot um, as a focal point and then track individual birds from Cordell Bank and see where they go and also try and understand what environmental factors can influence where they choose to go, where they choose to feed, when they leave. And so that's the um, the, the beauty of satellite tracking is that we can actually follow individuals, and we can't do that in a boat because these birds can surpass our ability to travel by many orders of magnitude, so being able to track them with the satellites is a um, great advance. So you're also using other satellite data, I take it, for learning about some of the other conditions of the ocean that they're traveling to. Right. There's what they call remote sensing data that's now, you know, large scale. You can look at wind patterns. That's a big one for albatross with their huge wings is how they use the wind. So we can use satellite data to look at um, wind locally in our area and then also across the whole North Pacific and then sea surface temperature, um, things that might influence food like um, chlorophyll, the amount of chlorophyll in the ocean. So those are the type of um, environmental factors that we can look at to understand where they're going and why. Great. So in the past few years, since this is the third year, what are some of the things that the group has learned about the bird? Well, in the first two years, um, we we know that California is an important place for them. But actually, the birds that visit Cordell, after they leave Cordell, they actually spend the majority of their time outside of U.S. waters. So that was kind of an important thing to learn, is that we can do some conservation work here, but to really protect the species, there needs to be international collaboration and so U.S. waters are, per, are protected within 200 nautical miles for some fishing regulations and other things, but they spent the majority of their time outside of this area. So there's um, sort of a – it's important for tackling some of their conservation issues is to know who to bring to the table, and, and it's really powerful to be able to show maps and, and an international audience and – for them to actually look and see how much time these birds spend in their waters versus the high seas. So it's uh, that was an important finding. 
So why why are the black-footed albatross too? And what's the significance of this species that is is important to study about them? Why are, why are we so curious about black-footed albatross as opposed to other birds? Well, all the albatrosses are interesting, <laughs> and black-footed albatrosses are, are the species that um, are seen most at Cordell Bank, and so we wanted to tie together our interest in California coast and a lot of our collaborators from Duke University and Moss Landing are already interested in working on the California coast. So that was one reason the species sort of fits in with um, Mm -hmm. what we're trying to learn. Um, And it's also some of their, some of the conservation concerns include the amount of plastic that they're eating in the ocean and now that we know that they spend so much time in the high seas, there's lots of long-line fishing. And albatross can get killed in long-line fishing because they're really attracted to the bait. And there's methods that can prevent that, but some of the methods aren't being used across the whole international fleet. So those are two issues that satellite tracking can you know, can help um, answer with, with this species, in particular black-footed albatross. Mm-hmm. So I would take it the same um, ill effects that blackfoot albatross are really it's representative of other seabirds that are suffering from the same problems out there on the international seas. Yeah, and they all have a little different life history and different behaviors and different you know strategies. So they're, the threats aren't all the same, but certainly um, being caught as bycatch and in many different fisheries. Is, is a problem that the birds that feed at the surface face, like albatross feed at the surface. And so they're getting caught in operations that are happening just right at the surface. But then there's other seabirds that are actually getting baits and hooks that are able to dive very, very deep. Some seabirds can dive all the way to the bottom. Hmm. So um, there's some, you know, differences. Well, I'm but sure there's a lot of methods. There's a lot of methods that can prevent bycatch, and that's... Um, a lot of work in Alaska and other places has really improved this. And now the next step, I think, in international conservation is is applying these methods that we know work to prevent this. Interest. That's great. That's important for that information to be applied. So I've, it's pretty fun. I'm, I've, I'm a subscriber to the Watch an Albatross Every Day. And I think, can you share with the, with the listeners how the public can follow along and, and watch these birds since they've been tagged? Yes, yes. So they've been flying around with, satellite tags on for two weeks and you can go to a website that every day their locations are updated so you can follow these birds around. There's 10 birds right now and there's actually a link on the Cordell Bank website so if you want to just go to Cordell Bank's homepage um, or you can go to oikonos.org and go to the Albatross Project webpage, and it will link you to this great portal called seaturtle.org, and it's not just turtles, so don't think that you hit the wrong link, <laughs> but seaturtle.org is the um, the host of all these great maps, and, and I, you can subscribe, you said, Jenny, you've been getting email updates? Yeah, on the seaturtle.org, you first have to let the people know, or you have to accept the conditions that you're there to just watch, so you're not going to use the data, and you just say, I accept, and then... It tells you all about the project, and you can subscribe to receive an email every day. And it's been so great because I'll get an email, and I'm so excited to get it to see where each of the birds have moved. And I noticed the one bird has moved all the way up the Sonoma Coast already. 
um, within a few days, actually. It, it seemed to go north, and I guess it's continued up north. I haven't followed that one specifically. Yeah, right now, a lot of the birds were hanging around Cordell Bank for longer than we expected. Actually, there were super high winds for um, the week after we tagged, but they, they stayed in the area, and one bird, Lucas, actually gone south to Mexico, and Cordell has gone north, and you'll have to log in to see the other birds. That's great. And you can also adopt these animals as a way to donate to both this project and what sea turtles trying to do from that link. That's great. So let me just restate the the two websites you can go to for tracking these animals. You can go to oikonos.org, which is o i k o n o s dot org and you can also link to the oikonos website through the cordell bank website c o r d e l l b a n k dot noaa n o a a dot gov well michelle i'm sorry we're going to cut you off we're getting just to the end of the hour but thank you for calling in and and telling us about the albatrosses and and their movements i hope the that the information carries to do some better conservation movements in the next few years for these birds Yes, thank you, Jenny. This is great. Excellent. Take care. So we're just wrapping up the end of the hour here. This has been Ocean Currents, and earlier we were talking with Ray Bandar, a, a skull collector, and Beth Cataldo, who's captured his life and his art so well in her film, A Life with Skulls. And we're just talking with Michelle Hester from Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge and, and hearing about the albatrosses that are being tracked around the Pacific waters right now. Please log on. Take a look. It's pretty exciting to watch where these birds are. And some of them are hanging around locally. Just from my time offshore in the last month, I've noticed a lot of albatrosses this year. It's been really exciting. Thank you so much for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. We're just about to wrap it up. And up next will be the rebroadcast of the West Marin Report, uh, followed by Will Miner with Foggy Ridge Music. Next month in August, um, August 23rd is the next show, and unfortunately I will be out of the country, um, but I have pre-recorded a show for you, and you'll be hearing excerpts from some of our research cruises, and it's a pretty cool uh, way to hear what goes on out there, kind of behind-the-scenes look. So thanks again for tuning in. Have a great night, and stay tuned for the West Marine Report.